Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, we sit down with Dr. Wade Fowl, Professor of Retirement Income for American College of Financial Services and the Director of Retirement Research for McLean Asset Management. Dr. Fowl shares his thoughts on the 4% rule, how to try and protect against sequence risks, his safety-first approach to retirement, buffer assets, and many other important concepts for retirees to think about. This is a good podcast for anyone nearing or in retirement looking for sound retirement financial strategies. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoy this discussion with Dr. Wade Fowl. Hi, Wade. How are you? Thank you for jumping on with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. We wanted to cover a number of topics related to retirement, which is probably one of the biggest and most important financial decisions that many people will make in their lives. Um, But there's also sort of a selfish thing here in the sense that, and we were talking before the podcast, Validia Capital is mostly a quantitative investment manager, but we've started to spill over into sort of the financial planning side of things. And we manage money for people that are in retirement or nearing retirement. And so part of this, you know, for us is going to be learning from your expertise and experience, but certainly our listeners um, that listen to the podcast, I think are going to get a lot of benefit from this as well as they sort of look at their retirement planning and their strategies. So I wanted to start with um, a quote that's on your website and I'll just read it here. It says, there is no one best practice for retirement income. What will work for you depends not only on your goals, but on your comfort level. So I just thought maybe just let's start at a high level and you can kind of explain what you meant by that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good starting point because I, I think I have a similar background as you in terms of coming more from the investment side of the world with a CFA designation and so forth, getting involved in retirement income and then starting to recognize there's more than one way to approach retirement. The risks really change. And, and so even going back 10 years or so, I've talked about how there are these like probability-based school of thought, which I associate more with the investments world, and then the safety-first school of thought, which I tend to associate more with like an insurance or annuity type of world. And there's a, a lot of crosstalk between the two sides saying this approach is superior for everyone and so forth, but just recognizing that actually there are retirement income styles. People have particular preferences related to their personality or their, their characteristics that describe how they want to get their retirement income. And so investments-based approaches are going to be the right, right thing for some people. More of an insurance-based approach are going to be, be the right thing for other people. And it's really just a matter of understanding what your style is, how you prefer to source your retirement income. And then there's a lot of different viable approaches for proceeding from there. It doesn't have to be investments only, but it, it's an option and it's just something that, to consider more broadly. The 4% rule is what a lot of people know about and that's become kind of widely used as a standard in retirement planning. But, you know, I think some of your thoughts and, and research is might show that that's not as bulletproof as many people uh, might think on the surface. So can you just maybe explain what the 4% rule is and then sort of some of the issues that you might see with that for some retirees? Yeah, yeah, the 4% rule, it tends to be the starting point for thinking about retirement income. And it's the investments only side. It's if I'm going to use, it was developed by Bill Bengen in the 1990s. 
he recommended using an investment portfolio of 50 to 75% stocks, saying as close to 75% stocks as possible. And so this is an important point to realize at the start that he's calling for aggressive asset allocations for retirees. And, and that's usually not when we hear about agent bonds and that sort of thing, it's more aggressive than we usually think about. But it, it's a way to try to turn the traditional modern portfolio theory, investment portfolio diversification and apply that to retirement by looking at how much can you spend from an investment portfolio and not run out of money. And so there's a huge number of assumptions that go into the 4% rule. It's assuming investors are in the index market returns. There's no investment fees. They never misbehave. Like I said, they need that 50 to 75% stocks. They want the money to last for 30 years. They calibrate that to the worst case 30 year market performance in the US historical data. They're not really paying taxes, or at least it's not a taxable portfolio. If it's tax deferred, they just pay out of the 4%. Uh, the, all these assumptions, <laughs> that's just the, really the starting point. But and I'll, I guess another important one is they really don't want to run out of money. That's why they're kind of calibrating it to these worst case scenarios. But when we look at the world today with interest rates lower than they ever were, stock market valuations as high as they ever were, at least up till 1991 is the most recent you can get to say the 4% rule worked historically. Uh, I just think it's a different environment. And so people might want to take a second look at whether that's an appropriate rule of thumb for today's retirees. You allude to this a little bit, but obviously we're, we're in a situation right now where the expected returns on bonds, you know, if, if you use the current yield sort of as an idea of what your expected return is, that's pretty bad. The valuations are really high in the stock market. So that expected return is not great. How much should that play a role? Like if somebody's retiring today, how much should the starting valuations and the starting yields on bonds, how much should that play a role in their retirement planning? Well, I think it's hugely important. And it, it both it speaks to just making your retirement plan work, even if you get below his, returns that are below historical averages. And I think with bonds, there's not really any controversy about that. Today's bond yield is a really good predictor. And even if interest rates go up, I think we'll, we'll talk more about this idea of sequence of returns risk as well, that if you're getting capital losses on your bonds while interest rates go up, you can't really rely on that as saying, well, interest rates are low now, but if I'm retired for 30 years, I expect they'll be higher in the future. And so it'll be fine. Stocks as well with, with the high valuations, they could continue to provide high returns, but there's just more risk associated with that. And so when you look at the US historical data and a lot of the financial planning software out there is gonna use that data to calibrate their Monte Carlo assumptions to calculate a probability of success. They'll get like a 95% success rate for the 4% rule. But if you start thinking about adjusting those average returns to account for the lower interest rates or the higher stock market valuations, suddenly that 95% success rate can start looking more like a, a 60 to 70% success rate which is still more than 50%, but often retirees aren't comfortable with success rates at that level. They, they want them to be higher, and that would suggest a lower spending level to, to boost up the success rate. I'm just curious, if you looked at, um, you know, you talk about the 95% success rate with the 4% rule, based on where we are today, if I, need, if I wanted that same 95% success rate, do you have an idea like what the withdrawal rate would look like? Uh, yeah, it would be, under 3% at this point, it would be somewhere in the ballpark. It depends right when I run the numbers, but somewhere around 2.8, even probably 2.8% now interest rates have come up a little bit from their, their very lowest levels. That would give you about a 90% chance with a 50-50 portfolio 
of having that money last for 30 years, kind of keeping in line with most of the other assumptions that go into the 4% rule. Okay. One of the things I've seen a lot of advisors advocate is sort of this variable withdrawal rate strategy. So obviously at the extreme, you could just use the 4% rule and use 4% of your balance, but that seems like an extreme because obviously that could mean huge cuts in spending during, you know, market downturns. But I just want to know what you think in general about those variable type strategies. And if, if you think there are maybe certain ways to do it that are better than others. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's definitely a way to help relieve some of the risk of this portfolio investment volatility in retirement. One of the really unrealistic assumptions of the 4% rule is that you'd never adjust your spending based on portfolio performance. You, you take 4% of the retirement date assets, and then you just keep adjusting that spending amount for inflation every year. So if your portfolio is losing value, your current withdrawal rate, the, the percent to get that spending goal, the percent of that remaining portfolio that you have to use, it's going up. And that makes it harder and harder to keep that retirement going. So being able to cut spending if there's a market downturn is a really powerful way to help manage the sequence risk of getting that bad market performance in the early retirement years. So if you can build in a strategy where you say, okay, if, if the market's down, I'm going to cut my spending, that can allow for a higher initial spending rate and it can have a big impact. And so that is a realistic and viable way to help manage some of that risk and not necessarily have to, I mean, I, I said maybe 2.8% as a more realistic 4% rule right now, but if you're will, 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 uh, willing to build in the flexibility to cut spending sometimes, 4% might be a more reasonable starting point, even in this low interest rate environment. You alluded to sequence risk, and I was wondering if we could just take a step back and maybe you could define that for our listeners that don't understand it. If you could maybe talk about what sequence risk is and why it's such a big risk for retirees. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so sequence risk, it's something that can exist pre-retirement, but it really becomes an issue post-retirement when you're taking distributions. And it's what Bill Bengen really created the 4% rule to help people understand. You can't just plug an average return into a spreadsheet and assume, say, historically the S&P 500s perform 7% after inflation. I can't just plug that into the spreadsheet and assume I'll get a 7% return every year. Sometimes markets go up, sometimes they go down. And when they go down, I'm having to fund a spending goal. So I'm having to take a bigger percentage of what's left from my portfolio to meet my expenses for that year. And then even if the market recovers, we, we believe in stocks for the long run, that if the markets are down, they eventually come back up and, and balance out and you get a reasonable investment return over time. But when you're having to sell from a declining portfolio, your portfolio doesn't get to enjoy the recovery that the overall markets might enjoy. And, and so that sequence of returns risk, that's if you get poor market returns in your early retirement years, even if the market subsequently recovers, your portfolio doesn't get to recover. And you're kind of locking yourself into a lower sustainable spending level than might be implied by the average market returns over your retirement. You're really being impacted by those early retirement years in a disproportionate way. Is there, have you done any research as to what the period where you really need to worry about sequence risk is? I mean, obviously when you're right retiring, you do, but is it like something like five years before and five years after or where the period where that's the biggest risk is? So sequence risk, it's triggered by having cash flows. If you just invest a lump sum, there's, there's no sequence risk. You always have the same account balance at the end of the time horizon. But if you're saving every year and then you're spending in retirement, what I find it's really around the retirement date when you're most vulnerable, say the, the five years before retirement. 
And then when you switch from adding new savings to taking distributions, that really spikes the importance of those uh, returns. So that the first year of retirement is the most important market return of your lifetime. The first five to 10 years of retirement are really important. I've, I've estimated that if you had a 30 year long retirement, the, the market returns in the first 10 years will explain about 80% of your retirement outcome. So the last five or so years before retirement and then the first five to 10 years of retirement and especially the first five years of retirement are, are by far the most important market returns somebody's going to have to deal with uh, with a lifetime financial plan where they're saving over a very long time horizon. I'm wondering what this what this means for construction of retirement portfolios. So there's, there's this common belief people have that, you know, on the date you retire, you have the longest time horizon. So you have the riskiest portfolio. And then as you get older, you move to the less risky portfolio. But this would su seem to suggest the opposite of that. Is, is that right? In a way, it does. And there's an, a few different ways you can look at portfolio construction in retirement. But uh, one of those, is, I did some work with Michael Kitsis, where we talked about the rising equity glide path that we, we uh, kind of agree with the idea about target date funds pre-retirement, where the whole idea when you're young, you have a higher stock allocation as you get closer to retirement. You take off some of that risk. But then where target date funds don't really get into too much details, what do you do after retirement? And they tend to either keep you at a low stock allocation or even getting lower over time as well. Like you were saying, that may continue to lower your stock allocation post-retirement date. Uh, but we think in terms of a risk management strategy, Actually, you have, it's kind of a, the inverse of when sequence risk. You have kind of a U-shaped lifetime stock allocation. You have the lowest stock allocation at retirement, and then it's the same pre-retirement. When you're young, higher stocks, lowest at retirement. But then you can gradually start increasing your stock allocation, again, post-retirement, as a risk management technique to protect you from really what's been the worst case scenarios, which is you get a bad sequence of market returns early in retirement and eventually markets recover. And so that kind of rising equity glide path would help manage the risk associated with that. It does create some behavioral concerns about getting more aggressive as you get older, but that's just more understanding the, uh, the quanti quantification behind of it all, that you're helping to manage that risk around the retirement date by using a U-shaped lifetime stock allocation glide path. Yeah, and I think this next question like kind of plays into the sequence risk, which is around your idea of a safety first approach to investing where investors sort of separate out their basic required expenses from their more discretionary expense items and take different investment approaches with each of those. So can maybe you explain a little bit more about what you mean by safety first and, and shake that out for us? Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, safety first. Uh... In terms of retirement income styles, I, I used to use the terms safety first and probability based to describe completely different styles. Now I've recently made that more nuanced where I kind of use safety first to describe you want more of a contractual protection behind your income, whether that's holding individual bonds to maturity or whether that's using annuities that will give you a, a bond like return, but also risk pooling or mortality credits. The, the ability to have spending supported over your entire lifetime. That's a preference with safety first where probability based, you're more willing to rely on growth from the stock market. You believe that stocks will outperform bonds and you're comfortable relying on that as a way to get additional spending power compared to bonds alone versus safety first. Well, you might, you can do it with bonds, <laughs> holding individual bonds to maturity to avoid capital losses if interest rates rise. 
but then you view that as giving yourself a window where you don't have to touch your stocks for longer. Or this, this kind of flooring approach where you think about, okay, I'm going to create reliable income to support my basic expenses throughout retirement using something like an annuity providing contractual protections. And then that can give me more comfort so that with my other assets, I can invest it and I can invest it more aggressively and I can go for more upside and I can accept more risk because I do have my basics covered with that safety first contractually protected lifetime income floor. Why annuities get like this bad rap? I, I, I'm not, I don't invest in annuities and I, I'm not really, um, but you hear a lot like, you know, there's some firms that advertise, you know, you should never be in an annuity, invest with us, blah, blah, blah. So I'm just, can you just kind of shake that out a little bit more about how, you know, one would use an annuity to um, deliver on this safety first principle and what, how much of a, I mean, like what dif different types of annuities are there and how much would one have to, I mean, this is pr probably a complex question, but just maybe just shake out annuities a little bit more. And I mean, you seem to be a little bit more in favor of them than most people sound like they are. So I'm just, yeah. So wondering if you could kind of shake that out a little bit more for us. Sure, sure. And annuities can be used lots of different ways. And so there's a lot of strategies that focus more on just getting tax deferral and so forth. I'm usually thinking about annuities from the perspective of retirement, which is to have lifetime income. And whether that's a simple kind of income annuity, that's just a, you, know, you pay a lump sum amount to get a protected guaranteed lifetime income for as long as you live, or there's newer innovations, different types of deferred annuities, variable annuities, fixed index annuities that add living benefits. So you can, they don't require you to annuitize the contract. You can still have access to the underlying funds. You can, with a variable annuity, you can invest in sub accounts and so forth. Uh, but then you add an optional living benefit that will support lifetime income. If your contract ever depletes because you got a bad sequence of returns or you end up living a long time, then that's when the annuitization kicks in and supports that lifetime income. And yeah, I think in the investments world, there tends to be like concern about annuities and it's, I think partly just comfort in the stock market. <laughs> so there, I, I talk about there's three basic ways you could fund retirement, maybe to make this really elemental. <laughs> uh, you, you can ha use bonds. It's kind of a lot of people, they're not wanting to take risk and so forth. So bonds, CD ladders, you just have all your assets in bonds. And then you have two ways to spend, your, your principal and then any interest that those bonds earn. Now that's not going to support a, a lot of income, especially in the low interest rate environment. And especially if you're worried, you might live a long time. So there's two ways you can try to spend more than bonds. The first is the traditional investment approach where you build that diversified investment portfolio. You use that high stock allocation because remember back to the 4% rule, like 50 to 75% stocks in retirement. And then you rely on growth from the stock market as an additional spending source. And if you really believe in the stock market, you say, that's all you need. Annuities, you don't need them. <laughs> they're, they're not giving you any value of safety because the stock market's gonna be fine. But the other approach would look at more, the way you can spend more than bonds is through an annuity. And that's, you have the supported lifetime income. If it's a simple income annuity, the you pay the premium, the insurance company puts that into their general account. It's mostly a, a fixed income portfolio. So part of your payouts are based on spending your principal and any interest that the insurance company is counting is, is the payout rate they quote to you. But then you also get this mortality credit, the, the risk pooling. 
those who don't live as long will help to subsidize payments to those who live longer. And so if you end up living a long time, a lot of your spending is covered by these mortality credits. And, and the idea that you don't get upside from the annuity, it, it's not true. It's, it's like risk pooling versus the risk premium. You can spend more either by hoping that the stock market will outperform and support a higher spending level than bonds, or you can spend more because you used an annuity providing lifetime income. And then you receive these mortality credits from the, the risk pool to support a higher spending level. Now, if you end up not living as long, of course, in hindsight, you'd wish you didn't use the annuity. But given that you don't know that in advance, what the annuity can do is really allow you to spend at a higher level throughout retirement compared to bonds alone, because you, you get these mortality credits on top of the bonds. And then it's just a matter of deciding, do I want to be able to spend more than bonds by allocating to an annuity or by allocating to the stock market? What do I feel more comfortable with? And, and I think there's just in that kind of I hate annuities and so should you type world, there's not an appreciation for the value of that risk pooling and mortality credit as a way to support a higher spending level that can be competitive with stocks and, and, and not really create underperformance relative to what you might have done with investments alone. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually. Um, what are the main factors that go into the process of picking uh, the appropriate annuity for each situation and for choosing between, let's say, an immediate or deferred annuity? Yeah, so there's a lot of annuity options, and we can kind of create a, a spectrum of where do you want to fall in that spectrum. So on the one side, you've got the simple income annuity. You, you pay a premium. You'll get a guaranteed monthly income for as long as you live, and you, there's no liquidity with that. You've, you've given up that asset, but it's a, it generally, in principle, could support a higher guaranteed income level. There's no upside with it, and there's no liquidity with it. And then as we start moving toward along the spectrum, somewhere in the middle would be a fixed index annuity. So it's a deferred annuity. It gives you liquidity. If you link it to a stock market index, you'll have principal protection. You can't lose with it. But, and if markets go up, you'll, get, you'll share in some of the upside. And you can have that optional lifetime benefit attached to support guaranteed lifetime income. So it gives you the liquidity. It, it may have competitive payout rates with those simple income annuities, but in principle, they should be a little bit lower because of the additional upside and liquidity with the contract. And then as you keep moving along, then you get to the world of variable annuities where you can invest in sub-accounts that are, they're not technically mutual funds, but they behave in a similar way. You, you choose your asset allocation and you can add that living benefit that will also support the lifetime income. So you, you can, you have the liquidity, you can invest for the upside. Now there, there may be surrender charges that limit your liquidity in the early years, but, but eventually you'll have the full liquidity. You, you can invest for upside and you can add that living benefit to support a lifetime income. And because of the more upside potential, usually they would have the lowest downside guarantee in terms of if markets do really poorly, you're gonna get a lower guaranteed income level than if you went with the simple income annuity. But the trade-off is if markets do well, you could potentially get step-ups and have more guaranteed lifetime income. So you, you, you face a spectrum, a range of opportunities that really depend on comparing how much downside risk you want to protect versus how much upside potential you want to include with that contract. 
and listening to some other podcasts you do, uh, you did, you talked about this idea of buffer assets and their, their ability to prevent people from drawing down their risk assets at the wrong time. I wonder if you could just talk about that concept and maybe talk about what the major buffer assets are. Sure, sure. And so we're hitting on all these. At the end of the day, maybe it's worth just kind of highlighting. There's four basic ways to manage the sequence of returns risk. And we're actually really going through them here. So just to be clear about that. The first is to spend conservatively, and that's kind of the logic of the 4% rule. It's, we don't know how conservative you'd have to spend, but we try to just pick something that we feel comfortable with. The second is variable spending. If you can adjust your spending after a market downturn, that can help manage the risk. The third is to control volatility in some way, whether that's that rising equity glide path we talked about, or whether it's more like a bucketing or time segmentation strategy where you use the bonds for the short-term expenses, stocks for long-term expenses, or that's really where annuities can fit into the mix as well, where you can, the, like that variable annuity with the living benefit, it, it's like a put option on the stock market. Your spending's protected if markets go down. If markets go up, you get some of that upside exposure. And then the fourth approach is the buffer asset. So this is something outside your portfolio, not correlated with the portfolio, that can provide a temporary spending resource when markets are down, so that if there's a downturn, rather than selling from a falling portfolio, you give yourself a little bridge. You spend from this other asset not correlated with the market and give your portfolio more chance to recover. And so there's three basic buffer assets. The original one is cash. You, you just have a big pile of cash that you, you don't really treat it as part of your portfolio. It's more, okay, if, if the market goes down, I'm just gonna spend from my cash. And then when markets recover, I'll go back to spending from the portfolio. I might even replenish my cash bucket at that time. Since cash isn't hardly yielding anything, we're hearing more and more about the other two are cash value of whole life insurance, as well as a growing line of credit on a home equity conversion mortgage or a reverse mortgage. Um, I want to ask you, you've, one of the ways you've simplified this process, I think, and this sort of covers some of the things we've talked about already, but you, you basically created like a bucket type approach where you looked at sort of four different buckets, lifestyle, longevity, leg legacy, and liquidity. And I'm wondering if you maybe could talk about that and, and how that relates to, you know, investors in retirement. Yeah, those, those four L's, those are, I view those as the financial goals of retirement. Uh, lifestyle and longevity are about the retirement budget. And it's, it's back to that point. If you can make a distinction between essential expenses and more discretionary expenses, longevity is the essential expense. Lifestyle is the discretionary expense. Some people can't make that distinction. And so maybe you'd really just talk about lifestyle and, and forget about the longevity. But both are related to your budget. Legacy is pretty self-explanatory. It's just your legacy goals, what you'd like to leave behind at the end. And then liquidity, I view as assets not earmarked for other purposes that can be a true source of liquidity for the unexpected. The, the problem with something like the 4% rule in terms of liquidity is if I believe in the 4% rule, I have a million dollars in a brokerage account and I, I want to spend $40,000 a year. Technically, I have a million dollars of liquidity, but, but in a true sense, I don't have any liquidity. <laughs> that entire million dollars is earmarked to meet that $40,000 spending goal. And if I use it on something else, I'm jeopardizing the ability to, to meet my future uh, budget. So I, I think of liquidity as assets that haven't been earmarked for something else that are available for, for whatever you wanna use them for outside of your longevity, lifestyle, and legacy. And then it's just a matter of positioning your assets in terms of earmarking them to your goals, the, the liabilities associated with those goals. 
so that you've, you've got expenses, your longevity, those essential expenses, cover those with social security with any pensions. And if there's a gap, consider filling that with an annuity, or if you're comfortable with investments only, you'd be drawing from the, the investment portfolio to do that as well. And then for the diversified portfolio, I, I like to associate that more with the lifestyle discretionary spending, as well as legacy goals. And then reserves, depending on how everything's structured, that could be anything from like a long-term care insurance or your, your home equity, uh, just family and community support, the types of things available. It could even be part of the portfolio that's not really needed for other purposes. But what's available to help cover the unexpected in retirement in terms of unexpected expenses that haven't been budgeted elsewhere in the financial plan. So I, I don't necessarily use the term bucket for those categories, but you could certainly think about it that way, that these are the four general areas you wanna to try to earmark assets to, to cover those expenses. You, you just re referred to home equity and home equity is interesting because it's for a lot of retirees, it's probably one of their biggest, if not their biggest asset, but it typically probably doesn't get incorporated that well into retirement plans. I'm, I'm wondering how people should think about that. You know, how, how should home equity be thought about in terms of retirement planning and things like reverse mortgages and things like that? Right. And you really hit the nail on the head. Like for most Americans, their, their investment portfolio is not going to be that big, the 401k and so forth. So social security is a huge asset and then home equity is a huge asset. And the default for home equity is really generally last resort, that I'll have the home, uh, I'll treat it as my legacy asset, but if something happens where, for whatever reason, I need either a spending shock or the bad market returns and so forth, then I might use that home by converting it into a reverse mortgage to get the, the equity of that home into something liquid that I'm able to spend, or by downsizing or something. And the whole research that's developed in the world about reverse mortgages, that once you're in the home that you anticipate staying in, it has this growing line of credit. And the way it works out, if you open it sooner than you may need it, so you don't treat it as a last resort, but you open it and use it strategically throughout retirement, that that can be a more effective way to use your home equity. And then it's not just simply a, a reserve asset in that liquidity box for the unexpected it could be used in any number of ways as a part of the diversified portfolio or even as a reliable income asset to help manage the market risk and the sequence of returns risk, whether it's a buffer asset or whether you refinance a mortgage so you don't have these big mortgage payments in your early retirement years that could cause harm with the sequence of returns risk. You've got a lot of flexibility for how to view that asset and fit that into the retirement plan in a number of different ways when you have the reverse mortgage connected to the home. Um, just two more questions before we wrap up. Um, the first is, I think, you know, retirement planning has probably changed quite significantly over the past 10 to 20 years. Um, but, and you know, it, it, we, we don't like to make too many predictions here, but to kind of put you on the spot, um, you know, as you look out over the next 10 years or 20 years with retirement planning, like what are the areas that you're most excited about and or that you think will change the most when it comes to um, retirement planning for individuals? Uh, the thing I'm most excited about, it's really just based on research that I did with Alex Margia coming out this year is just this retirement income style awareness to increasingly put a language around there are multiple legitimate retirement income styles. 
And, and so if trying to just trying to help people understand their own personal preferences and their own style so that they can associate the, the right advice. Because right now, if they're listening to the car radio and they hear commercials about hating annuities, well, that could be the right advice for some people, but not for everyone. And so to better align people to the advice that's suitable for them and to have a language around this, I increasingly find myself saying like, well, if you're an income protection person, this strategy works great for you. But if you're a total return person, that strategy works great for you. And, and how to better just understand all these, there's not one superior way to build a retirement income plan. There's a lot of competing approaches and none of the, well, some may be flawed, but there's a lot of viable approaches and to understand based on one's circumstances, the, the right approach to take and to be more flexible and open-minded and to be able to better serve a broader range of clients. And, and so having investment managers coming to recognize that in some cases there can be a role for annuities. Uh, having annuity salespeople recognize that sometimes investments are okay for certain retirees. It just put a, a language around that and, and more flexibility to consider different approaches. And our closing question, which it's maybe a lot of your answers could have could be the answer to this, but based on your experience in the markets and with retirement planning, if you could impart one piece of wisdom or teach one lesson to your average investor, your average retiree, what would it be? I'd say to, to be flexible and also to enjoy life for sure. So I do, and kind of this whole 4% rule debate, I, I do tend to get associated with 4% is high and therefore you've got to be more conservative about your approach to retirement. But being flexible, being able to go with the flow, I mean, people at the end of the day might be okay if they don't have much more than a social security benefit. And it just makes sure you're not overly saving or, or not accounting for the fact that spending may decline with age. And, and so to strike the right balance between enjoying the present, but also being responsible about protecting the future as well and, and to not get too carried away in either direction. That's great. If people want to learn more about um, your firm, your research, what you're working on, where can they uh, get more information and follow you? Oh, thanks. Yeah, so my website is retirementresearcher.com and it's all one word, it's retirementresearcher. And I, I've written three books. I'll have a fourth one coming out in September. But they cover the safety first retirement planning about more of that insurance-based approach to retirement. How much can I spend in retirement? Which is more of that probability-based. If, if you don't want an annuity, so you want to understand how to approach retirement with just investments, how much can I spend in retirement? And then also a book about reverse mortgages and, and different ways they can be used in a retirement plan. So that, that's the, that'd be the highlights for how to find me. <laughs> Great. Well, listen, thank you very much. I learned a lot during this discussion. I'm sure our listeners will too. And um, best of luck with the, uh, the new book that's coming out. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was great talking to you guys. Thank you. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at PracticalQuant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJCarboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.